my name is Dustin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're going to be talking about Louis Bunuel. But before we get started on the famed surrealist filmmaker, we have a special guest, which we rarely have. Someone that was involved with one of the movies that we're talking about. He actually helped write the story for the Exterminating Angel, and I'm going to let him explain exactly how it happened. Ladies and gentlemen, Owen Wilson. Well, hi guys. Um. I, 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 it's, it's an incredible story. I was transported back to 1920s Paris, and, and, uh, well, who's this special guest over here? Hello, I am Dali. <laughs> Do you have a movie idea for me? <laughs> well, my idea was you could have a, a, a house for a fancy dinner party for a rich family, or, or rich people, and they they're not able to leave. That was Owen Wilson in Midnight in Paris, the Academy Award-nominated film by Woody Allen. It was a good time for me to test drive my <laughs> Owen Wilson impression. Do you have a familiarity with Louis Bunuel as a filmmaker? Uh, have you watched a lot of his films, Will? Uh, Bunuel's one of those people who, you know, being interested in movies, you probably end up seeing like a half a dozen of his movies just just. Because you do. Especially at like Film 101 where they're going to throw a Chandalou or the Golden Age up. Yeah. Because those are like textbook films. But definitely, uh, and and he's definitely made movies that I like a lot, uh, but not somebody who I've spent a lot of time thinking about or reading about. So this is definitely kind of an in-process episode. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing that... Me and Will, we watched The Exterminating Angel and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and also uh, Simon of the Desert. Mm -hmm. But it felt like I was just scratching at the surface Mm -hmm. of his work. Mm -hmm. Like the more research I did about the filmmaker, the crazier his life proved to be. And my assumptions of what kind of films he made, like that they're all kind of like The Exterminating Angel, it was destroyed because he made straight dramas like The Young and the Damned, which I did know about, but I didn't know that he made like an English language film about racism called The Young One, also known under its English working title, White Trash. And a stunning variety of cultural contexts that he worked in, Mm. not just, you know, Paris in the 20s with the surrealists like Salvador Dali, uh, who he's a close collaborator with, but also Franco-era Spain, uh, Mexico, America, and then, yeah, finally, especially in his later years, working in France kind of after the new wave. So uh, Louis Bunuel was born in Spain. He grew up as a rich kid who went to Jesuit school and was brought up very religious, but who says that he broke with religion very quickly when he realized that it made no sense. And I think here are kind of the seeds of what would uh, unite most of his best work, which is a deep distrust of arbitrary cultural hierarchies, you know, imposed by wealth and power and what he would suggest are uh, strengthened by religion, which is which he regarded as hypocritical. It's funny that he did come from money because his films were always attacking those things. Like Mm -hmm. the bourgeoisie and the upper class were targets from the get-go when he made Un Chien Andalou with um, Salvador Dali. Mm -hmm. Even though that if you look into it, they basically wrote the scenario together. Their idea was to capture images that they had seen in their dreams and kind of lay them on film without a clear narrative. Just that kind of, what is the word that a film professor would use? Uh, Stream of thought. Stream of consciousness. Exactly. In the interview I saw with Luis Bunuel today, he said the rule was to refuse any image that could have a rational meaning or any memory or culture. 
preparing for this episode, again, I wish that I knew more about Bunuel and have seen more Bunuel because I'm very intrigued by what mm. I've seen. I mean, I'd seen The Exterminating Angel before, but I hadn't seen The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie before. And watching these two films this week, they broke my brain a little. Yeah. But like in, in a good way. I think that what I always associated with Bunuel was like a chien d'alou and that kind of stuff, which was out and out surrealism. Like, look at yeah. these crazy images. Yeah, you got is, a guy with ants coming out of a hole in his hand. You have the famous shot of the uh, cow's eye being cut and then cutting to a moon with clouds over it. You, Get it? You're linking images. You got a guy who he's chasing a woman in the room and then all of a sudden he's got two pianos strapped to his back and the pianos are dragging cows and bishops. Watching these movies, especially I had seen Exterminating Angel before, but just mm-hmm. another rewatch paying close attention what really popped this time was the craft that he brings mm-hmm. to these movies and that they work so well, not because of his mastery of presenting weird sights, but it's of grounding them in realist narratives that have their own logical, illogical well, kind of structure. Yeah, this is the thing, like Discrete Charm of the Bourgeoisie. I found it a very pleasurable viewing experience. I also found it a very challenging viewing experience because I had to really pay attention to it. Mm. It's a movie that has dreams and dreams within dreams and fantasies and kind of out and out surrealism, but all delivered in the same deadpan style. Yeah, Uh, like this stuff going on is not that crazy. And there's enough things to ground the narrative that when those things pop up, it's weird, like people having um, lunch and suddenly a soldier sits down beside them and he goes, let me tell you the story of a dream that I had yesterday. And it's like cut to like a weird stage play with painted backdrops. (laughs) And it's easy to lose track of where are you in relation to reality because everything is presented very literally. Mm -hmm. And that literalness can kind of lull you into this sense of it's all real. And then something really absurd will happen and it'll kind of punch you in the gut. There's this one scene where these characters that are the centerpiece of the film that are all these rich kind of empty people who keep trying to meet for a dinner date and just have dinner and they they never get to it they keep going and going mm-hmm. almost getting so close but never quite getting there are revealed to be on stage yes and then it cuts to the guy in the conductor box like whispering the lines to the people on stage mm-hmm. but they don't know what to do and they're covered in sweat and they like panic and like get up and leave i guess the other thing that makes them a slightly challenging viewing experience is his films leave so much unsaid mm. so take a movie like Belle de Jour erotic masterpiece his erotic masterpiece one, one of his most famous films and, a, and a, a more kind of serious movie than either of these films so Catherine Deneuve plays a housewife who kind of on a whim decides to become a prostitute and there's a scene where one of the prospective clients opens up a box and shows her something in it to indicate that he wants to incorporate it into their sex and she looks at it and says no and then it just kind of cuts to another scene and you don't know what was in the box and you don't know what it meant to that guy and you don't even know what happened after that but people have read that film especially that scene as like the most erotic thing that they can think of because it exists in the mind right and as we all know uh the the mind is the uh, ultimate erogenous zone I'm kidding. That's your it, opening line uh, to I, any girl that you go on I, a I'm date ki- with? I'm kidding. It is the penis and the clitoris. <laughs> um, but we should jump back a little bit. Of After Bunuel made uh, Un Chien d'Alou, he almost instantly the next year, him and Dali got a commission from a movie cinema to make uh, The Golden Age, or L'Age d'Or, as it's called, mm. 
And that movie is kind of just an extension of Urshan Dalu. It's an hour long. Mm-hmm. I, well, I like Lajdor quite a bit. I mean, it's. I feel like the satire is a little sharper, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's more directed at religion. And yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of the plot, such as it is, and, you know, like Urshan Dalu, a lot of it is disconnected vignettes. But a lot of the plot is about this young couple who want to con- consummate their relationship, but they keep being stopped from doing so by the morality of the day. And then when they finally start consummating their relationship at this fancy garden party with the, with the band and everything it makes everyone at the party turned on and it turns into an orgy with people like sucking the toes of the statues and stuff which ends with the marquis de sade showing up and then jesus christ himself <laughs> it, leaving that orgy oh uh, that yeah it, it ends with an allusion to the 120 days of sodom yeah and that, uh, that scene of jesus leaving the orgy the censors were not pleased that with scene that. blew my mind <laughs> really? when i saw it for the first i saw lash door in the perfect context which was red heart cineforum <laughs> what is cineforum for people that don't know what it is uh, well. the, the cineforum is this uh, movie theater i think is the the phrase i'm looking for that's it run in toronto by this local eccentric named reg hart who runs it out of his living room on bathurst street and he posters the city like, like if you come to toronto you will see a reg hart poster walking the streets they're these photocopied black and white things that promise lsd movies or like sex and violence cartoons yeah they've been the same ones for almost 10 years of longer longer than that like he'll show triumph of the will he'll show uh, nosferatu to the music of radiohead mm-hmm. he has a, a repertoire and this is part of his like uh anarchist surrealist uh film festival and i mean uh, something i'll say about red chart cineforum uh, i wouldn't necessarily recommend going more than once but i mean don't recommend even going yeah once. even even once frankly but i mean there is something to seeing lash door in an environment where it feels a little dangerous now did you were there other people there or i mean there was me and my friend and no one else okay that yeah. sounds like the cineforum experience yeah. Yeah. so lash door was banned all over the place for a long time and what's really surprising for a filmmaker who had like two big controversial hits right off the top is that Bunuel didn't really work as far as making hits or things that penetrated the cultural consciousness for a long time i mean he found he and the other kind of uh, left-wing intellectuals of the era found themselves on the wrong side of certain political developments happening in europe i mean his good pal salvador dali uh ended up being a crazy right-wing fascist so (laughs) they did not stay friends for very long separate the artists from the art (laughs) and bunuel kind of bounced around the world for a while he went to hollywood in the 30s where supposedly he just met a bunch of stars including charlie chaplin but kind of refused to like leave his hotel room to do anything (laughs) and then he ended up going back to spain and then going back to hollywood where for a long time he dubbed movies into spanish and at a certain point uh his career was saved by moma who hired him to re-edit uh nazi propaganda to make it into american propaganda But, but then just as he was about to get his citizenship he couldn't get it because he was a communist yes that is 100 percent true the witch hunts happened and he was chased off once again and he found himself in mexico mm-hmm. but he did have the hit in 1950 at the ripe old age of 50 years old of the young and the damned mm-hmm. which was this social realist film that really made an impact and once again like every Bunuel film really raised the ire of all the officials like how dare you portray the poor this way yeah and and then Viridiana even though it won many prizes at film festivals 
was uh, banned in Franco's Spain well, because well, of its Last Supper scene. Well, what's fascinating about Vir- Viridiana is that uh, the Spanish officials actually like wooed Bunuel back. Like, come on, work back in Spain. Like, work with us. Mm-hmm. Don't do your stuff in Mexico. And he went, okay, well, this is the movie I'm going to make. <laughs> when he sent it to the censors, they only had like a few notes, including the final scene, which kind of, it doesn't, you don't see it literally, implies that the main female character goes and sleeps with her cousin. Mm. So he rewrote it where she walks in and sees her cousin and another girl and she goes, oh, and her cousin goes, oh, no, I'm sorry. You just interrupted us playing cards. Would you like to come and play cards with us? (laughs) And the centers were A-OK on that. So (laughs) instead of just um, lovemaking on screen, uh, it turned into a threesome. (laughs) And that film pissed off all sorts of people. The Vatican. Yep. Uh, who threatened to excommunicate Bunuel, I think. Mm. And he was an atheist, so he didn't really care that much. Yeah. They should have done it. Yeah. Just for fun. <laughs> yeah. So he ended up, I think, in Mexico again, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. Where he made The Exterminating Angel in 1962, a film that we both revisited for this for this cast. I love The Exterminating Angel. Mm-hmm. I think it's so much fun and it's so well executed it's taken so seriously in the film that it is essentially like a survival tale. If you did this entire story with a plane crash, like it wouldn't be that different. Like you wouldn't have to change the script that much. Yeah, I have heard people compare it to like a disaster movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the humor is extremely dry throughout. So the plot of the movie, as Owen Wilson said earlier in the episode. <laughs> hey, where'd Owen Wilson go? I guess uh, he just, uh, he, had, he had grown yeah, he's, up he's, four a, he's, a, he's a busy man. He's got a, <laughs> a, an active Hollywood career making that movie where him, he searches for his real father oh yeah it's coming out soon <laughs> yeah yeah ticket um, already bought i'm sure we'll cover that on the podcast but anyway the plot involves a dinner party for the ruling class uh they have a lovely dinner they make fun of the servants they say they spend a lot of time saying horrible things about poor people when one of the servants trips while carrying food they all laugh at him mm-hmm. uh, there's one character who talks about how a train crashed and it crushed the whole third class car and they all died and that and they thought that was funny well i hope they get their comeuppance in this movie well just just as they're all deciding to leave, they find by some mysterious compulsion they can't leave the room. It, there's no invisible wall. <laughs> there's no there's no barrier. It's just they can't leave. Mm-hmm. And people can't get in either. Mm-hmm. So the media is outside. Uh, the police are outside trying to get them out. Meanwhile, this, this room of terrible rich people is in, you know, with a chisel going at the wall trying to get water from one of the pipes. They're committing suicides in the closet. I, like, they go into the closet to have sex or, you know, take a shit or do whatever they have to do to survive. And they slowly realize that they're going to die here mm-hmm. because they cannot leave this room. Well, some of the symbolism of the movie is is very blunt. Yes. I mean, it is a film literally of insiders and outsiders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like that. You know, <laughs> I like I like some good, like, class war symbolism. But just the craft at play in this <laughs> film, the way the camera moves and the way that it yeah. does its dramatics, or even the sequence where a woman has a fight with a discombobulated hand, <laughs> just like it's out of Evil Dead 2. Yeah. And it's never, I feel, too much. Like, you're always involved in what's going on. While it is a joke, it treats itself, like I said before, extremely seriously. And on a thematic level, I guess one of the ideas recurring through Bunuel's movies is that 
like the way we behave is conditioned to us in a very early age. We're, we're brought up to believe in certain uh, social structures, in certain rituals. I mean, dinner, the setting mm. of the dinner recurs in his movies as this kind of like structuring ritual that gives meaning to our lives. And like any movie like this, what it does is eventually once those norms crumble... You see the raw anger and yeah. uncontrollable, like, lust that is at the base of every human being. Yeah, yeah, and you, and you see how fragile the systems really mm. are. But also, I think there's some kind of metaphor in here about, you know, we have this this rigid social system, this this class system, and yet... And we could dismantle it if we wanted to. And yet some compulsion is keeping it in in place, you know, like. And that also plays in the end of the movie where they go into some other edifice that uh, is reoccurring in Bunuel's work. And suddenly, <laughs> uh oh, they can't leave again. Yeah. Like... And, and who knows what that institution could be? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't want to spoil would, yeah. anybody. So. <laughs> We also watched another of his Mexican films from that era, Simon of the Desert from 1965. Which I went, Will, you gotta watch this. It's only 42 minutes long. And I said, sure, 42 minutes, bam. It was originally meant to be a uh, part of an omnibus film, which were all the rage in Europe, like Godard, uh, Louis Malle, even Fellini, like all participated in these kinds of films. I believe it was also at one point supposed to be a feature length film and mm-hmm. the producer simply ran out of money. That's a rumor. I heard an actor say, no, it was always supposed to be this length. Like, this is all the story that he had to tell. Well, I mean, it makes sense because, you know, from what I heard about what the supposed feature would have been, it would have just been, like, further variations on the same theme. It wouldn't have necessarily added much. Which is about uh, Simon, a very devout man. An ascetic saint. I I believe his actual name, I've got it written down here, was Saint Simeon Stylitis. Gets on the top of a giant column in the desert so he can get closer to God. And that he can kind of put away all earthly matters and really focus on his devotion. But guess what? That wily devil uh, shows up and wants to get him down from his perch. In the uh, alluring figure of the actress whose uh, name escapes me at this point. I thought this movie was probably the funniest of all the Bunuel ones that I watched. Just from like the beginning where a man is like, please heal me, give me back my hands. And then boop, his hands come back and he just goes back to normal. He's like, come on, kids, let's get out of here. Uh, it is very funny. I was having trouble kind of figuring out what Bunuel thought of what he was depicting because on the one hand, it's sort of a satire about like the absurdity of extreme faith. Like it's ridiculous that this man spends six, six years, six months, six days the but, sign of the beast on top of uh, this pillar. But at the same time, God exists in this universe. Yeah, yeah. Because he is doing miracles. And, yeah. and, you know, he's helping. But it's almost saying that, like, even if God exists, man is so feeble and, like, lame <laughs> that it doesn't matter. Like, at one point, the uh, a priest possessed by the devil starts yelling about stuff. And the priests are like, no, we're against that. We're against that. <laughs> it's like, what is that thing again? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or even Simon is, like, saying the like devout uh, beliefs in God and he like loses his train of thought and forgets what he's saying. It's almost Python-esque at times. <laughs> yeah, you know isn't what? It? Yeah. It's exactly like Life of Brian. Yeah, that's what it made and me And actually think now of. I think about the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie reminds me a lot of the meaning of life. Mm-hmm. And I think that like the Monty Python gang have been pretty transparent about their inspiration of Bunuel and that kind I'm of stuff. I'm not surprised. I've seen like the Mr. Creosote bit, for example, could have come straight out of a Bunuel movie. The, I thought the ending of Simon of the Desert, uh, spoiler, it, it takes place in modern day New York, mm-hmm. um, which I guess is meant to represent hell. I thought it was a bit of an anticlimax. Yeah, I thought so too. Uh, it feels like there's almost a scene mythic <laughs> because it just cuts from him at the top of the pillar 
to him suddenly in a jazz club and dancing around wearing his hippie shades and you expect Dick Miller to come down and be like, hey, have cats. Yeah. I got a new piece of art to show you. So I guess one of the unusual things about Benuel compared to other directors is that aside from those early surrealist movies, most of his really important movies were made after he was 60 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a run of movies not only Belle de Jure, but also uh, Tristana, The Phantom of Liberty, That Obscure Object of Desire, and the 1972 film that we watched, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Yeah, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie is usually the first one people go, other than The Externing Angel, when they're talking about Bunuel. Like we mentioned before, it's structure of these rich people, once again, sticking into those uh, <laughs> uh, fat cats, Bunuel, trying to have supper it's such a perfect story to just hang a bunch of skits on. Yeah. Which is something that, like, in The Phantom of Liberty, he would just kind of toss out. Like, the story is very vague in The Phantom of Liberty. And that I think that the best Bunuel films of the ones that I've seen are the ones that have that overriding backbone <laughs> to, like, hang these gags yeah. on. So wait, you mentioned that it broke your brain. I mean, there were, there were just, like, forever being moments in the movie where I was kind of unsure where we were in reality, like the scene of uh, the soldier remembering him killing his father, or who who's not really his father, but the ghost of his mother telling him to kill his father. Or there's the tea house without any drinks in it. Uh, yeah, like we, the we, whole gag of that is it, that they keep asking for stuff to drink, and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, we're out. I mean, it's to, to mention Python again, it's like the cheese shop sketch, isn't it? Or, you know, there's the scene where they're, they sit down for dinner, and yeah, they're in the theater, or the other scene where they sit down for dinner, and the army comes in, <laughs> and the scenes don't have punchlines oh, like, I, like Python does what i really liked about that army dream though is that he explains his whole dream and then it ends and the general goes hey can you tell us the one about the train and he's like oh no we don't have time for that one we gotta get going yeah yeah, yeah. the other challenging thing about it is that i had trouble telling all these characters apart they're all empty vessels mm-hmm. you know other and i mean the, that's the strategy of the film of course other than the relationships that they have with each other there's yeah. no way to tell them apart and they're like <laughs> ambassadors that are bringing cocaine in yeah. and they're also being hunted by terrorists. Yeah, and not everyone is who they seem to be. Yeah, because yeah, exactly. there is this like guerrilla terrorist group <laughs> who keep infiltrating and at one point gun them all down mm-hmm. in what I think is actually a dream sequence. <laughs> People are constantly waking up from dreams yeah. as the movie goes along and it, you have no indication of whose dream you could be following. That's almost the punchline to the gag that suddenly a person that gets killed will wake up and then we'll follow it from there. I loved it though. I'm really glad I saw it, and now I want more Bunuel. I want to learn more. Yeah, I think that that's probably the thing that I took away from this week of watching these Bunuel films, is that I had kind of put them in a weird box that I, I think he was unfair to have been in, because my belief of... I had seen The Phantom of Liberty for some reason, that's mm-hmm. one of the ones that I saw, mm-hmm. which was so disconcerting and was just a series of skits one after the other, the most famous one being a bunch of people shitting at a dinner table <laughs> that then have to get up and go to another room to eat. And by the way, South Park basically reprised that gag later, <laughs> yes, right? You remember yeah. there's that episode where they're all they're all shitting through their mouths at a dinner table, <laughs> you know, to, to point out the absurdity of the fact that eating is a social gesture, but the actual byproduct of eating, which is shitting... <laughs> is a private thing. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing with Bunuel is that I, his name has become such a, of when you see, oh, that's very Bunuelian, yeah. that people kind of forget the actual movies and yeah. how 
they work so well. I remember Guillermo del Toro saying that not a day goes by that he doesn't think of Bunuel. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was like, wait, what is he talking about? Like, is there a level of surrealism or kind of magic realism in his film? But watching Bunuel's films this week, you could see Guillermo del Toro is also just the way that he moves his camera and he tells stories. Mm -hmm. Like there's more there than just like a random goat that shows up. Right. Which... You know, Wes uh, Craven would steal in Nightmare on Elm Street, <laughs> which he admitted that he stole from Bunuel. So I think that this is a subject that we'll definitely be returning to probably in our Patreon episodes. Like yeah. maybe picking like specific movies. To Let's tackle. do it. But until then, we're going to go on to letters. It's letter time. It's letter <laughs> time. My little tribute to Nicholas Piccolis. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. This week, uh, the letter is from Elise Moore, who I believe we read uh, a letter that she yeah, did yeah, last week as well. Yeah, the Jerry Lewis one. So, the letter, as we mentioned last week, was actually very long. Right, <laughs> like, we, we condensed it. And there was, a, there was an interesting uh, bit of information in it, wasn't there? Yes. She mentioned that she used to be married to Guy Madden, who we actually did an episode of way back to the point that I don't remember what we said on that one to you. I believe we were in favor of him. And she just wrote back um, saying that uh, she was very surprised that we talked about him. So the letter continues. I keep hoping that Guy is going to reach that level of fame where some critic somewhere will quixotically decide to reevaluate Twilight of the Ice Nymphs. <laughs> Since I actually worked on that one. But maybe it's never going to happen. Maybe it's his Dune. Does that mean that Denis, Denis Villeneuve will make it? Ice Nymphs 2049? Uh, she points out that she is not credited on any of the work in question. Although I was offered credit when legally possible. But I'm sure you believe me. Because what kind of freak would pretend to have worked on anything Guy Madden had directed <laughs> that he disowned? <laughs> Is there any movies that you can think that are like so critically reviled that get reevaluated like 20 years down the line and be accepted as like, oh, no, this is actually good. Uh, there are tons of them. I mean, uh, Speed Racer. Well, Speed Racer is one that I saw finally last year and really enjoyed. But I mean, I think two very prominent examples recently are Showgirls, mm -hmm. uh, notably Adam Naiman leading the charge with his book on that. And Elaine May's Ishtar is a movie that I hear people you know, saying good things about these days. I, I know. I wish it was a visual podcast because I was making a big face. <laughs> Ishar's Ishtar, got good moments. Uh, Ishar has an amazing 20 minutes. Yes. And you wish the rest of the movie was that. Yeah. And it is unfortunately not. Uh, Ishtar, I think, is, you know, we've talked about movies where, like, uh, you watch them over and over again, wanting them to be better. Ishtar is one of those movies. Yeah, I've seen it three times now. We did a whole podcast on and it. I think the next time I watch it, I'm really going to love it. You think so? Yeah, you, but then you're gonna get who that knows? scene where Dustin Hoffman like pretends to do a. It's prob it's problematic. Yes, it is. And other than that, I like I'm, I'm trying to look at my DVD shelf and being like, it's tough to consider movies that were like reviled when I was uh, like a teenager or young that are now like accepted because I feel like some of those like that barrier hasn't been passed mm -hmm. in a way that you can go, oh. Uh, this George Romero movie when it came out tanked, but now everybody loves it. Like even something like Day of the Dead, which was disappointing after Dawn of the Dead, has been reaccepted. Or famous examples like John Carpenter's The Thing, which was reviled when it was released and tanked at the box office. I think there are certain movies where the fact that they tanked at the box office is almost like it's almost part a of a badge the, of honor. It's part of the text. I, the, I think my example for that would be Charlie Chaplin's Monsieur Verdoux, mm -hmm. where the fact that he played this serial killer character. And 
and the fact that it was kind of an anti-capitalist movie in like the Cold War and that audiences wouldn't accept it. That's part of what makes it interesting. And then after that, you'll get to The Countess of Hong Kong. I have no revisionist appraisal of that one. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Oh, <laughs> but soon. Well, you know, A Countess from Hong Kong and uh, A King in New York are two films that are also in that category of movies that I've watched multiple times. Hoping to Hoping like. to love. Oh, man, I'm trying to think of, like, there's no movie that I would consider a classic that I've watched multiple times, but there are some that I've put on because my friends like it, and I've sat there going, like, why don't I like this? A good example of that is Alex Cox's Repo Man, hmm. which is a movie that... If you gave it to me on paper, I'd be like, I love this. This is going to be amazing. But every time I watch it, there's something that just doesn't click with me. And I've owned it on VHS. I've owned it on DVD. And it's just, I don't understand. What, what, do you, what don't you like about it? Let's get, let's get down to brass tacks. I mean, I haven't watched it in a long time, but it's just there's something that I can't engage with it. Like I can, I'm aware that Harry Dean Stanton is good in it. I love the look of it. And what's funny about that is I really love Straight to Hell, the critically reviled film Alex Cox made right after Repo Man, the spaghetti western Mm. that he did with a bunch of punk stars and stuff like that. And I adore uh, Walker, which was a film that he made that tanked and basically killed his career, but was released by the Criterion Collection. So like... Mm-hmm. It's been reappraised since then. Do you maybe not like Repo Man because of its attitude? It has kind of a kind of a almost snarky, disaffected. You know, tone. maybe, but that that seems so weird that like that kind of anarchy is something that I would be like against. Mm-hmm. But you know what? You're right. Maybe it's my complete hate of all things ironic that <laughs> makes me rebel against something like Repo Man. Maybe one more example I'll bring up. That's just an example of how the whims of fashion and context can really affect a movie's release would be Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, Mm. which over the last, I swear, two years has now been reappraised as a masterpiece. But before that, I mean, when it came out, it was a joke, basically. It was regarded kind of half as a cash grab, which is ridiculous to think because it's one of his most uncompromising movies. But it was also seen as just an incredibly unpleasant Also a spit in the face of everybody that liked Twin Peaks, right? Because the series ended on such a emotional cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. And if then the creator of the show years down the line goes, oh, I'm going to make another chapter in the story, what a fan would want is those questions answered. Yeah. And instead you just got more questions. And, and also the show is like a fun show with like uh, Dale Cooper eating pie and uh, solving fun mysteries and having his coffee. And the movie is, you know, living in the home of a girl who's being abused by her father. Tonally, it's just so different. Oh, and I think the other thing about Firewalk With Me is it just came out at a time when kind of the knives were out for Lynch. I mean, there's... I think there comes a point when an artist has been so praised mm-hmm. that people start to kind of worry like, oh, are we are we betting the wrong horse here? Like, you know, the point when the artist hasn't quite ascended to master status yet. Mm. Um, like, we've seen enough of his shtick. Like, yeah. does he have anything else that he can deliver? Even yeah. though that what's weird about Lynch is Eraserhead is so crazy. Mm-hmm. But then he made Elephant Man, which is like a straight yeah. drama with touches of his, you know, style. So he had proved himself already in and, that regard. And, but also, like questions about Lynch had been starting to you know starting to bubble up that kind of came to a head with that movie of like how sincere is Lynch is Lynch sexist is it just arbitrary weirdness weirdness for weirdness sake 
and especially with the second season of Twin Peaks, which disappointed so many people, people were starting to feel like, well, maybe this guy, uh, maybe he's Gaspar Noe. Yeah. <laughs> Where is Gaspar Noe these days? He made love like four years ago. Gaspar Noe, I remember, was talking about doing a remake of God Told Me To. I hope he does it. Ugh, that would be amazing. I'd be, I'd be interested to see what he you does You know what? It'd be ponderous, though. <laughs> yeah, and, like, yeah. painful to watch. But I'm, I'd just be curious. But you bringing up Lynch uh, is a good segue back into Guy Madden, who automatically people would associate as the Canadian David Lynch, right? Yeah. Because he has that strain of weirdness that is his own. And I believe Madden has uh, owned up to his debt to Lynch. But know? the thing about Madden is, and as Eliza points out, is that... He never had that crossover moment like Lynch did. He never had a Twin Peaks mm-hmm. or he never had like, I don't know how popular Wild at Heart was, but it did have Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern. Like it was a film that opened in like thousands of theaters. The only Guy Madden film I can think of doing that is the saddest music in the world. There definitely seemed a 10 year period when he was perpetually on the verge of breaking yes. out. Like saddest music in the world. And then My Winnipeg was well received mm-hmm. by those who saw it. And then there was Keyhole, yep. which had some bigger stars in it well what's funny about twilight of the ice nymphs is that was supposed to be his breakthrough film like he did it for a studio it was in full color um shelly duvall starred in it (laughs) like this was supposed to be the box office (laughs) that was gonna take him essentially to the next level and what ended up happening was i haven't seen twilight of the ice nymphs in years Mm -hmm. but i remember it feeling like a pale imitation of guy madden Mm -hmm. in some sense like his heart wasn't all in it which is very unfortunate and maybe it should be reevaluated i don't know i haven't seen it like i said in years thank you very much for the letter release and if you'd like to write us you can do so at import cinema club podcast at gmail.com what are we doing next week will well, the Royal Cinema in Toronto is going to do a retrospective of uh, one of the key American visionaries, I think. Uh, so we'll be doing an episode on John Waters. A big figure in Will's life. Not so much in mine. So it'll be a John Waters. Well, you know, we'll see. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll find, maybe I'll come to the podcast and be like, I hate John Waters. You've seen a couple of his movies. Yeah, right? I've seen Serial Mom. I've seen Pink Flamingos. I've seen Multiple Maniacs. I've seen A Dirty Shade. Okay. Yep. I've seen Cece Bill Demented. So okay, I've seen a lot of Also, you've seen half of them. Yeah, I have. Okay. But I feel like, you know. You didn't the, see them all at once. No, and yeah. I haven't seen, I think, the key ones like Hairspray and Polyester. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the ones and, that, and Female Trouble. And Female Watch Trouble. Watch that one. So I think the ones that we're going to talk about let's classic so let's do female trouble Mm -hmm. and maybe a later period one like like the good ones are kind of like up to and including serial mom Mm -hmm. uh so i don't know maybe we could talk about i i think i'd like to talk about polyester actually okay polyester it is and so it'll be john waters next week and until then my name is justin clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening We've been going to see a lot of the Tarkovsky movies that are playing at the Lightbox this week. Probably influenced principally by our friend Marco Balaban, who's like, <laughs> you've got to see these movies with me. I'd seen a few of them before. I'd seen Solaris and Stalker before. I remember when I was like younger and when Solaris first came out in the Criterion Collection and when George Clooney did the remake. Yeah, like, Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, like Solaris was almost talked about at this time as if it was this like unendurable object. Mm-hmm. Like people talk about it as this like extreme art cinema. Given that, I'm kind of surprised how popular this retrospective of the Lightbox has been. Well, what I found really surprising is that talking to some people 
who are really excited about it, the fact that a lot of them are playing in 35 millimeter is a rarity, Mm -hmm. which I assume that these kind of prints were the like evergreens when it came to like retros and stuff like that. Like, yeah, let's toss the uh, Tarkovsky on. Maybe some Antonioni as well. Mm -hmm. We've got Exterminating Angel. Yeah, sure, whatever. But no, supposedly they're very rare. Yeah, Tarkovsky, I guess, yeah, hasn't been seen that much recently. I mean, why is he so popular at this particular moment? Because Antonioni seems out of fashion to Mm -hmm. me. I think it's it's like, you know, rich guy, white people stuff. That's how people view Antonioni. Yeah, just emptiness. Yeah, fairly or unfairly, you know. I, th- I don't think Bergman is particularly in fashion because the stuff that he deals with, you know, like man's crisis of faith aren't things that preoccupy intellectuals much anymore. But Tarkovsky... These screenings have all been sold out pretty much. Yeah, and like all of Toronto seems to be there at every single one of them. I've been trying to think of like, why is it now? Like, why do people feel they need to come see these movies at the light box? Mm -hmm. The first one that we saw was The Mirror. Mm-hmm. which is a very difficult Tarkovsky film. I had a, I had a hard time with it. I have, to, I have to be honest. And I remember when I walked into the sold-out audience, I had to sit in the balcony, mm-hmm. that I was very disappointed that it was a DCP. And it was an ugly-looking one as well. Well, the Tarkovskys that I've seen in 35mm, like, I, I saw Stalker at the Lightbox a year and a half ago, and it had this, there was a grain to it that, gave it an intensity a texture it felt like a living thing with a heartbeat whereas that mirror dcp had a milky washed out quality to it yeah we ended up going to see nostalgia not nostalgia as our friend marco keeps telling us it's nostalgia nostalgia there's a gh in there yes and the thing about tarkovsky is that there was always been this barrier to me where I've been kind of fascinated by him, like I am with a lot of difficult cinema, where, you know, you hear that Andrei Rublev is 235 minutes in its longest version, and you're like, what could that be? Like, mm. it's so popular, I want to watch it. And then usually I end up watching like 20 minutes of it, and I'm like, oh man, this is, <laughs> I get distracted by something else, because, you know... You're at your computer, your phone goes off, and you can't give it the attention that, like, it deserves. Mm -hmm. Because these are movies that the theatrical experience were made for, where you got to get lost in it. Mm -hmm. And watching Nostalgia, which I was surprised uh, doing research afterwards, is one of his most dismissed films. Really? It's not brought up a lot, because many people consider it a parody of his previous work. Like, the elements... Like, self-parody. Exactly, like the water and the kind of like broken down environments. I thought it was stunning. Personally, I thought it was amazing to the point that like when it ended, I was like, I could watch that movie again. (laughs) Like if I, if there's like a nice Blu-ray version, (laughs) just like to capture things that I hadn't seen before, because this uh, barrier that I put on myself of this film is going to be very difficult, which is something that, you know, every now and then comes up. Do you ever have those thoughts, Will, that, like, this is going to be a difficult viewing experience? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, these Tarkovsky movies... I mean, well, well, with the Tarkovsky movies, I kind of... One of the appeals of them for me is that it's going to be almost like an immersive environment. Mm-hmm. Like, when I see these movies, it kind of feels like having an out-of-body experience in a movie theater with these kind of like durational epics that that are so where the images and the sound are so intense watching nostalgia on screen what really like hit me almost right away is the mastery that tarkovsky has of like texture and sound uh-huh. and while you may have no idea what's going on like i i still don't really know what nostalgia was about well i was very moved by 
the the tone and what I got from the story, especially in the context of that this is the movie he made in exile from the Soviet Union. And, you know, it's about this this man researching the life of a composer in exile and also being kind of in exile himself. And then, you know, the last image, it's like time and space sort of converge on on each other and all all areas become one area and i think in the context of tarkovsky's life situation that all seemed very moving to me but most importantly for me is that the movie was very funny yeah like there's this is a film that has a lot of like visual gags and i kind of became intoxicated at the way tarkovsky would move the camera (laughs) there's a famous shot near the end of the movie that i didn't know about where just the main character has to carry a candle across like a drained pool Mm -hmm. to reach the other end and it's a kind of sequence that you only start to realize what's happening as like minutes go by Mm -hmm. and the candle goes out and he has to do it again and the way that the camera captures this decaying surrounding that he's going in and the, the exhaustion on the man's face while at the same time, the suspense of what's going on, like, will he make it to the other side with the candle? And all this is playing in one sequence with no cuts. It's so amazing that I, I feel like this is the stuff that I wish someone had taken me aside and been like, hey, you know, you can have fun with this. <laughs> you could watch the beginning of the film and compare it to the kind of crumbling gothic horror film. <laughs> that you like Justin like this is just an extension of that but no nobody ever told me that and I always felt kind of uh, intimidated by these kind of movies because we've talked about doing a Tarkovsky episode and we're we're like I don't know about that well I I feel like I haven't quite lived with Tarkovsky enough yet yeah he's a filmmaker that I feel is so complex and that there is no real through line to his films most of the time, other than being completely involved in his life and his political identity, uh-huh. that everybody can take something different from it. I guess. I, I was very intimidated by The Mirror when I was watching it. I got, well, I had no fucking got, idea well, what was going on. I mean, well, it's one of those movies where, like, there's there are scenes in the past and the present, mm-hmm. and there are, there are dream sequences, and there are memory sequences, and there are people playing multiple roles. Reading about it, like, some of the characters are played by his mother yes. or his then-wife. And then like, when you also, like, weave in the elements of Russian history, History that take place into it with like stuff about the war and actual newsreel footage uh and so there's the personal and the political and you know you i need that annotated guide as i was you watch i it. was intrigued by it i gotta yeah. get i'll give it that it, even the mirror sitting there and watching it visually there's images that i'm like whoa like i wish yeah. i had seen these before yeah. maybe the reason that people are seeing tarkovsky movies now is that they want to challenge themselves in some weird way yeah and and there, i think there's something about like being in a movie that's a bit of a challenge and you have to pay attention to it and you're freed. It's like an out-of-body experience and you're freed from all these other distractions. You know, your phone, your your mm-hmm. tablet, your whatever. And it's not something like Chaplin or even the Marx Brothers, which has a kind of feeling of always being around. Like Tarkovsky is something that people know, right. but they don't watch because mm-hmm. it is that difficult. And it's also right on the end of like, these prints... They're probably not going to come back here yeah, because yeah. they're either on their last legs and have been cut to shreds, like you mentioned Andrei Rubilov was. Oh, yeah. Terrible print. <laughs> or something like The Sacrifice is a 4K restoration. And what happens when those come out 
is that they just quietly put the prints away because they don't want people to watch those. They want them to watch the restoration. They spent money on these 4K restorations. I think that's such a tragedy. I think, because even watching Nostalgia, as we were sitting there, it wasn't a perfect print. Like there was like a like the weird footsteps that happen sometimes when an audio track mm-hmm. goes off, but it almost sounded like rain in the yeah. film at all times and created its own atmosphere that we will never experience again watching the that film. The colors were so rich. Yeah. The, bla- the blacks and the teals and the blues were so rich. So basically, if these movies or any movies are coming to your town, you should go and see them. Uh, And the official important cinema club position is that art films can be fun. (laughs) 